Welcome to episode number one of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, where it is my job to interview aerospace pioneers from industry and academia to share their stories of innovation in aerospace and to look into the future by discussing what new technologies these industry leaders are currently working on. Today's guest is Dr. Chauncey Wu, who is a research engineer at NASA Langley Research Center in Hampton, Virginia. Chauncey has worked at NASA for more than 30 years, predominantly in the field of structural mechanics, and has been responsible for designing and testing a number of space structures that have been launched into space. Some examples of his work include structural analyses on the light telescope that was launched into space in 1994, as well as optimization of rocket propellant tank structures, and if you can believe it, conceptual design studies of lunar lander vehicles and habitat structures for the colonization of the moon. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discuss Chauncey's path to NASA as an undergraduate student, the history of NASA, and the cultural shift compared to its predecessor, the NACA. We answer the question of why rocket science is so hard, and finally, we talk about Chauncey's recent research on a new type of lightweight composite material. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, and if you'd like to delve deeper into any of the topics discussed, then you can find show notes at aerospaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast. Now, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Chauncey Wu. I'm here with Chauncey Wu, who is a, um, a research engineer at NASA Langley Research Center. Welcome. I'm glad to have you here, Chauncey. Thank you, Reiner. Pleased to be here. So just to kick this conversation off, I'd, I'd just like to ask you a couple of questions um, about your educational background, your career path, expertise and technical focus, so how you got into the industry. Absolutely. I mean, I, I start out... Um, after I graduated high school, I started in the aerospace engineering program at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. Um, and as I, as I was going through that program, I recognized that, you know, that I would, you know, there were many other students in the same program as I was and, and who would be graduating you know, uh, with the same degree that I was. And so to get in my, I wanted to, uh, to try to distinguish myself from them. Uh, make myself stand out from them, and so you know, one way to do that is grades, and you try to you know, try as hard as you can to get good grades. But another way to do that would be uh, to distinguish myself from other students would be experience, practical work experience. And so what I wanted to do was to get involved with the co-op program. That's a cooperative work study program that that is uh, fairly common in U.S. universities, um, and and get some practical experience uh, through that uh, through that type of program. Another option to, do, to get that kind of experience are, in, are internships. Uh, internships are shorter term. They're typically a, you know, a summer over the summer, um, whereas co-op programs are extended uh, programs where you alternate work and school each, every semester um, and then until you graduate. And so these co-op programs typically add another year to, your, to, your, to an undergraduate degree, so, uh, so five years instead of four. But you get a you know at least a year of, of uh, in, uh, practical experience. So that was my goal. Um, took me 
a while to get uh, in, into into a co-op program, but I ended up hiring, getting uh, hired into a co-op program in NASA Langley Research Center, which is in Hampton, Virginia, um, and then I started that at the end of my sophomore year, um, and again alternating some semesters of work and school until until I graduated in 1988. And I mean, what is uh, such a you know the, the co-op pro program? So you're saying you were alternating right. back and forth between right. I guess the university, university and NASA and, Langley. And NASA. So so what did work at NASA look like? Was it project based or? Right. So I, w I would come to I would have an assignment kind of set up um, ahead of time. Um, and then I would uh, come come to Langley at the start of a semester instead of being at school, of course. And then I, was, I would spend the next sixteen weeks or so um, as a you know as an intern, extended intern, a co-op a co-op student at, at uh, NASA. I was considered an, an employee. I was a, a temp, um, an employee of the federal government at the time, and so I would uh, be assigned to a group, a specific branch, doing in and. Uh, assigned to a specific mentor who would, uh, you know, help me uh, do a project that that they had uh, hopefully defined, you know, ahead right. of time that, that would work out or that would worked out to to do ahead of time, um, supporting their their own work, um, whatever research or or uh, project based applic project applications that they were um, involved with. Did you continue through that through your master's degree as well, or no? Uh, so um, I did that for for four semesters, alternating semesters. Um, I graduated with my bachelor of science degree in, in 1988 um, in aerospace engineering, and then at, um, and then went to work for NASA full time as a as a research engineer, um, and then uh, follows in, in my early, in my research assignments. I took I set, I took uh, some classes that were offered, um, basic math classes uh, that were offered, or graduate math classes, I should say, but you know, uh, foundational classes that were offered at, at NASA um, with the intent to go uh, away for a graduate study leave. Um, so I went to the University of Illinois in 1989 to 1990 for uh, two semesters to do my master's degree in theoretical and applied mechanics. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've, you know, left the center on a graduate study, you know, leave um, to for those two semesters. I was, you know, considered an employee, but but on on leave, on a paid leave of absence uh, at the time, or, and then went to uh, you know uh, Champaign Urbana, Illinois, where uh, which is the main campus of the University of Illinois, um, and then studied there, and then at the end of that, came back to Langley and uh, pick up my. Right, so it's, I mean, that's really fascinating because it's, it's very, very tied then in terms of the industrial and academic link. So you're basically the entire, almost the entire time while you were studying, you were a government employee, yeah, basically. So you basically had a job assurance yep. as you left, left university, yes, basically. Yeah, exactly. which is, so yeah, I mean, that's a very fortunate yeah, position to yeah, be in. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and then I guess so. You, so your your history with or your relationship with NASA Langley then goes back a long 1985. way, nineteen eighty five. So, I mean, would you yeah mind telling our listeners maybe a bit more about NASA Langley, sure. what it is? Absolutely. Um, NASA Langley Research Center was the uh, was the was founded in nineteen seventeen as the as the United as the as the first uh, um, American civil aeronautics research lab lab. Uh, it was at the time a, the first field center of the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, or the NACA, um, and and so up until the uh, up until the advent of, or the the eve of World War II, 
uh, Langley was the first and only field center for NACA um, at, as World War II um, loomed in, 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 uh, in Europe. Um, NACA uh, took uh, cadre that is core you know, uh, people from Langley and then moved them to uh, the, the Lewis Research Center in Cleveland, what's now NASA Glen, uh, and the Ames Research Center out in uh, Mountain View, California. Um, and, and staffed uh, new research uh, uh, organizations out there, founded, as I said, Lewis and, and Ames uh, uh, organizations uh, to better you know, to geographically distribute the, uh, the, the research that NACA did and basically don't put all, to avoid putting all one's eggs in one basket uh, that way. Mm -hmm. um, so Langley, Langley's been around, you know, this is our centennial year. That's very exciting that we, um, there's been a lot of interest in, in, in um, you know, in, in Langley's history because of that milestone event. Um, we had a, a, a centennial uh, colloquium or a, a series of talks and, uh, by, by historians and, and people in the area, former center directors, people in the, uh, in the aerospace industry uh, as, uh, several months ago. Uh, as well as an open house, um, in, to the, uh, which will be opening Langley's facilities to the public in, at the end of October mm. of this year. Very nice. And I guess, I mean, a lot of, at least when, when, I, when I hear Langley Research Center, I mostly think of, you know, the Space Task Group sure. of the 1960s. Exactly. But, I mean, NASA Langley is known or has contributed so much more in the 100-year history yeah, than absolutely. just what kind of like hits, you know, the, 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 the thought that springs to your, uh, into your mind right. as, as you hear the name. So, I mean, how, how wide is the research activity in NASA Langley? Oh, very wide, you know, very, very broad uh, uh, work. And Langley's won a number of Collier trophies. Collier trophy mm -hmm. is, the, is, is, is the, an award given uh, for the, annually for the greatest, uh, the, mo the most significant, you know, significant achievement in, uh, in aeronautics. Uh, Given out and, and and Langley's won a number of trophies of Collier trophies for, for uh, Langley personnel have won Collier trophies for uh, uh, many things. Uh, Fred White won won a, a Collier or was awarded a Collier trophy for the um, the, the the low drag cowling in the in the 1929. Mm -hmm. And then uh, John Stack, who, who uh, were, was awarded a Collier trophy with. Larry Bell and and Chuck Yeager mm -hmm. in oh, 1947 wow. for the uh, for the X1 for the X1 yeah. the sound barrier. Uh, John Stack also won uh, won a Collier Trophy was awarded a Collier Trophy for the slotted wall wind tunnel, uh, to coming up with that concept to allow uh, wind tunnel testing um, at, at transonic speeds without interference from reflected shocks uh, you know, in, in, inside the wind tunnel. Richard Whitcomb won a Collier Trophy for the area rule. Um, you know, development of the aerial rule, mm -hmm. which was a pretty fundamental uh, achievement for uh, achieving transonic flight. So, so Lang, you know, a number of Langley's, you know, uh, Langley's uh, work has been, you know, uh, has been uh, personnel have been recognized with you know, major achievement awards like that. Yeah. Um, Richard Whitcomb uh, also invented, you know, invented the uh, supercritical wing, and then um, and winglets, which are all of, you know, which are used in addition to the area rule for, you know, for, for high-speed aircraft uh, today, or for high-sonic flight. 
Yeah, so I mean, it's, I mean, winglets are now also on, on you know, on, I mean, the Airbus A350 has winglets 787. So yeah, I mean, so devices that were kind of, you know, pioneered at NASA Langley are now being flown on, you know, a wide array of commercial jets. Exactly, many different countries and many different countries' products. And they've become kind of ubiquitous in the industry. Right, yeah. And I mean... Um, I mean, I personally know you from, you know, my area of expertise, which is which is composites. And I think, I mean, what I've failed to mention before is that you you have a PhD in, 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 in composites. I think that was a collaboration with the University of Delft, if yes, I'm... Right. A, a Technical uh, University of Delft in, in the Netherlands. I, I, my advisor was Safar Kudal. He was... A, I, started our, uh, uh, under, I started under him as, as a PhD student in... Uh, when he was at the at uh, Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, um, and then when he moved to to TU Delft to take the the faculty uh, the the structures chair there, um, he rather graciously let me finish uh, my PhD at, at Delft, and so that was a very rewarding experience, and I'm certainly very grateful to Zoffer for yeah. for for, uh, for his support over the years. Yeah, and I guess the well, one of the fascinating things um, about well, Mass Langley and yourself is that even though a lot of your background is let's say in structural mechanics, recently you've taken up a role which is entirely different. So why don't you tell me a bit more sure. about your current role at Langley? I'm currently an acquisition manager in, at the, uh, the Science Office for Mission Assessments. The, uh, that office is at, located at NASA Langley, but uh, their role is to support the Science Mission Directorate at NASA headquarters. Um, in acquisition of Earth and space science missions and instruments. Uh, so, Na so NASA and specifically Science Mission Directorate uses a process that uh, uses an um, instrument that they call announcements of opportunity. And those are basically uh, terms and conditions for, for work that NASA in, in, uh, intends to do in, in, in science. Um, the, the, we support missions that are principal investigator led, that are the, those could be university professors or uh, researchers at uh, government labs or, or industry labs in space science and those PIs are responsible for uh, the, the mission the, the mission success uh, in both the, the scientific technical as well as programmatic areas uh, we work with the um, program scientists at SMD to, to develop an announcements of opportunity and we also uh, lead the technical management and cost assessments uh, uh, of proposals that are received uh, in response to these announcements of opportunity. The, the goodness of the science um, in these proposals is evaluated by scientists uh, uh, led by, uh, and, and uh, but we, we assess the engineering asp uh, goodness of these, uh, soundness of these proposals. So essentially yours, you're, if, if, I'm, if I'm understanding this correctly, you're basically, you're assessing a, a proposals by scientists that would like to use NASA technology to basically have their experiments in space right. and then the, the the basically the value added in this case is that we 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 get new new knowledge new insight new scientific knowledge. new scientific knowledge about about mars about right. the solar system yeah, about exactly. anything like that so so science the, the science mission directorate has four main areas of of work of research one is uh, heliophysics which is the you know the study of the sun and, and solar environment, space weather, uh, astrophysics, which is looking at stars and galaxies. Um, and so Hubble Space Telescope and James Webb Space, space Telescope fall under uh, the, the um, astrophysics division. 
The Planetary uh, Sciences Division uh, includes the Mars programs, uh, uh, New Horizons, and, and, uh, and the Juno uh, ex you know, Outer Planets Exploration. And then the fourth division is, is the Earth Sciences Division, which studies, of course, our, our home planet. So we and, and we in the, in the SOMA office support proposals that uh, yeah, uh, across the, the, the in all four divisions. Right, and I guess the fascinating thing for you is then that if, if a proposal comes across your desk, well, at least you know that one of those proposals at the end will be funded by the agency, right. and then that piece That's of equipment with that experiment will then basically you know, end up in space. And so you have basically directly worked on something yeah, that some ends up in space, yeah, right? Absolutely. And so, so when, when NASA puts out these announcements of opportunity, you know, anybody's free to propose. Um, we get in a, a, you know, a, a number of responses to those proposals. Uh, we get, get a basket of proposals in, and we, then we, we do these science assessments as well as the te technical management and cost assessments. And then, um, those we take those results of those uh, reviews to headquarters, uh, the science mission directorate staff, and then the, they go they go through a process of categorization uh, uh, and selection to determine uh, you know a subset of, of those received proposals, which would then uh, be um, further you know further assessed, uh, further refined and assessed. Um, and then eventually select you know, to, with the intent to eventually select one or two of those, or some you know, to to go fly in space to further development and then to fly in space at some point in the future. Right, um, and I guess I mean so in in that particular role, I'm I'm basically kind of recognizing a theme which I it's it's kind of a, a almost a comp competitive thread throughout NASA, whereby on one side you have the research, scientific research, and and basically de te technological development of new um, space uh, vehicles, um, and on the other side you have kind of the mission uh, and operational side of things, where NASA is basic or in 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 the past has served as basically our our transport into space. So um, I know that you have quite a, you know, a good grasp on, on the history of, of NASA and its predecessor, NACA. And um, was there a, a difference in, in, in the strategy between, let's say, the NACA and, and what it then became as, in, sure. as NASA? And, and how, how did that shift happen? How did the NACA turn into NASA? So those are good questions. Uh, in my, I, I believe, my opinion, I think that the, the NACA was a, a very... Um, you know, it was a research organization, but the research that was done there was always, uh, that was conducted by NACA, was always intended to have practical applications. And, and uh, applications like the low drag cowl, you know, it was able to, they were able to increase the speed of aircraft um, by, by, you know, putting this, this specially shaped cowling over the, over the, uh, the radial engines. It was actually it was they were able to cool the engines, which was the original, you know, uh, but but again, you know, solve solve dual purposes, um, cool, you know, uh, increase engine efficiency, but also reduce drag. Um, so NACA always had a very uh, uh, applications focus to their research. They brought uh, industry leaders, the the uh, 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 Charles Lindberghs and the and the. Um, 
and other luminaries like that, the Wright brothers. They brought them to to Langley um, as part of an annual conference mm. um, of industry um, uh, contacts, you know, basically. Well, yeah. The high-level people, industry you know, presidents, mm-hmm. company, you know, in, within the, the American aeronautics industry at that time, aerospace. Um, and they brought them to Langley, and the, and the purpose of, the, of this conference was basically to, to talk about work that was ongoing at Langley, but also to ask these these you know people who were you know obviously very closely tied to the industry, were the industry for that matter, ask them what problems do you see? What problems should we be working on mm-hmm. to help you achieve your goals? Um, and so the NACA did that for a number of years, ten to fifteen years in the, in the late in, in the twenties and thirties. Um, and then I think that, that I, I don't know when exactly they stopped. My guess is they stopped in the late thirties, mid to late thirties, or something like that. But basically, it was you know you guys tell us what problems we should be working on. I mean, it wasn't exclusively uh, industry. The, the NACA research was not exclusively industry driven, but it, but you certainly want to see our work mm-hmm. be applied. And so the easiest way to do that is that, you know is to ask somebody who would you know who's you know what problems should we be doing you know to, to help you to help you solve you know um, make your airplanes faster or lighter. So that was the NACA's research culture that you know that permeated through the, the 1940s and the 1950s, and then as, um, as as when the NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, was formed from the, the those three Lang the three uh, NACA research centers, uh, Langley, Ames, and, and Lewis, um, as well as uh, organizations from from like the Army Ballistic Missile Agency in Huntsville, Alabama, which then became. Marshall, um, and then the, uh, the the part of the Naval Research Lab in Greenbelt, which now which then became NASA Goddard. Um, so when NASA was formed as an organization in, in 1958, you know it had a very it it had a strong core of research culture that came that came over with the with the NAP, uh, the NACA research centers uh, into this new agency, which is now you know tasked with through this, you know, exploring the new frontier of space. Um, so, you know, the people that were working in, you know, in, uh, to lead, lead that effort, the, the Bob Gilruth and, uh, and folks like Bob Gilruth and Chris, Chris, Chris Kraft it, were not space scientists or, or, you know, they were not, you know, they were not, um, they did not have a, a, a deep background in, in, in space and, and space uh, Spaceflight, but what they did have was a very sound understanding of how to how to use research to support applications, how to pose research problems that could then be used to you know, to to, um, to attack those new problems or to, to to attack the new problem of spaceflight, um, and so they were able you know they were able to to use that experience to then guide and focus. Uh, uh, work to support you know that that new mission, um, and so over you know over the years uh, since then through the nineteen sixties and you know of course uh, the, uh, Apollo and then later the, the um, you know the, the space after that the space shuttle era, um, I think we as an agency the collective agency has become more and more operational um, have, have an op- had more and more of an operational focus and less and less of a research focus. And 
that is what it you know it is what it is. I, mm-hmm. I can't say it's good or bad, but I mean that's just an observation um, in, on my on my part. I think that the, you know, there's been less and less uh, emphasis on on the research and research capabilities um, at, in the agency as a whole. We flew shuttle for 30 years, a whole generation, mm-hmm. um, because we didn't develop launch vehicles during that time. We've lost that, uh, you know, a lot of those skills, and so we need to build those back up. Mm-hmm. So, so would you say that? I mean, we. I always have this, you know, the image in, in my mind of um, of uh, John F. Kennedy stating that, you know, by the end of this decade, we will have a man Absolutely. on the moon. So, so that incredible period of the 60s where you basically went from being massively behind, let's say, the Soviet sure. Union. I mean, we, we can compare technology, yeah. but I mean, they put a satellite up in, you know, in, in, in orbit. Um, so that incredible 10 years, that incredible decade, um, do you think that that was mostly driven by just the sheer willpower and, and Kennedy saying, look, we're going to do this? And then people, you know, the money was there. The, the national work, will, the there. will was there, and and there was a there was a mandate, you know, that was laid out there by Kennedy, and and when he, you know, he died a martyr in in, in 1963, if you will, um, you know, we as a nation, I, you know, I, I say we, I was zero, you know, a year old or something, you know, I was very young, and, or not a, at the time, but I could say that there, you know, that there was a, a national will to to fulfill his vision. Vision that he, you know, he laid out of you know putting a man on the moon in a decade, within the decade, and, and safely returning him. And so money was not an object. Um, you know there was a clear mission, a clear objective, um, and, and NASA and the nation were behind that you know that goal 100. Um, percent And would you say that 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 the operational kind of the research to operational shift that that you've observed. Um, would you say that that was already complete in the 60s, so that the technology that they were using was mostly already developed by NACA beforehand, or was there still a lot of, you know, pushing the frontier? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I wasn't around right, at that right, time, right. so I, I can't really say that, you know, one way or another, but um, it, you know, I don't know. Right, yeah. Um, so I just want to, yeah, shift gears a little bit and get into the, you know, the, the technical details of things. We've all heard... You know the, the the proverb. You know it's not like it's rocket science. So why is rocket science hard? Sure. Um, there's a lot, of, probably a lot of different things. I mean, one, you're dealing with very high energies, um, very energetic systems, and so when things break, they tend to break very <laughs> uh, explosively in some cases. Um, you know, because because of that. Margins are very small. Your your margins of, of failure, you know, are tend to be smaller. You have less room for error, if you will. I mean, that's probably a better way to say it. Um, and so, you know, it's it becomes very important to get it right and get it right the first time because you may not have a second chance at something. Um, for for systems that are you know like these spacecraft that are on, you know on uh, going to the outer you know, outer planets or something like that. The speed of light constrains what, how we can communicate with those um, with those spacecraft. We can't. You know, we don't have instantaneous feedback um, when we send a command. You know, we have to it, we have to wait for for the, the, the you know those radio waves to to move along at you know uh, uh, 
over finite amounts of time, um, and then the spacecraft would execute the commands and then send back a signal saying, I ex you know, I did it. But that return signal also takes a long time to get back, and so we, you know, we're not able to do things in any kind of near mm -hmm. near real time uh, scenarios until we can see see the light, <laughs> which might be a while. Um, so that's one reason. And again, these are energetic systems. They're the margin. Uh, you know, we we can't overbuild um, spacecraft. If you think of civil engineering, civil engineering factors of safety are like ten, you know, ten, fifty, you know. They, they can just add more, you know, add more concrete. I mean, that, that's, that's civil engineers may, may take exception to this, but I mean, that's, the reality is mass. You know, mass is 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 less of a consideration. You know, for when when you're sitting on, on the Earth, and you're trying to put those uh, uh, those pieces of structure into orbit, every gram counts, not just every pound. Every gram counts. I mean, they're, they're um, little little. You know, Little bits of mass uh, can cost you a lot of payload in the end, and so you're making structures that are you know that are operating at their margins uh, you know, with you know with factors of safety and you know that are that are much smaller than, than those that would be used for civil structures. Um, so again, if something breaks, then it's more likely to break catastrophically than than to fail in a benign Right, and I guess I guess the other the other point is that it it, it seems like that it, in a rocket, if we're just building a rocket, let's say, the amount that the di the different disciplines that have to kind of interface seeming seamlessly sure. in order to get that system to work. I guess I mean you you, you need the thermodynamics, yeah. you need the the structural yeah. mechanics, aerodynamics. Yeah. So go down the whole laundry list of these things. Yeah. So how do you actually? Get to that point that you. I mean, is that purely a management uh, role, or how, how do you make sure that all right. these things interface correctly? Right, and so it, it takes a lot of work by a lot of people. Systems engineering is hard. It's very hard to get right. It's very easy to get wrong, and because and because it's hard to get right, I mean that it, it's, a lot of times it doesn't. It isn't done properly. You know, properly. And, um, so you know, close coordination you know, and, and, and looking at these interdependencies and that kind of thing that that is that is a very um, key role of the systems and uh, systems engineers in these in, in and then when you add on these factors that I mentioned earlier like like high systems energy you know a lot of very energetic systems you know, that can fail in, in, in very catastrophic ways. You know, it, it, the risks the risks get higher and higher. You know, the, the stakes of, of uh, get much higher you know, as, as, you know, when all these factors are taken into account. Right, and I guess so. You, you talked about the the safety factor before, and I think I mean most engineering students have you know they learn about the margin of safety, safety factors. One of the first things that you learn. Yeah. But I think, well, at least to me, the the older I get, the more I realize what an underappreciated, you know term the safety factor yes. is because i mean why i mean just to put 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 it back to, to the basics why do you need a, a safety factor you said that in in airspace engineering or at least when you're putting yeah. things in orbit these safety factors are tiny right so relatively, you have a normal relatively, relatively compared to other right, industries because mass is such a big okay, uh, sure. consider consideration so I guess I mean uh, we we've got the known unknowns things that we we know we do not know but we have to right. kind of take into right. consideration 
And then we have the unknown unknowns where we're basically entirely ignorant. Right. We don't actually realize that we're trading in, you know, on thin ice. Exactly. And, and so is that the best way to think about the safety factor or are there other approaches that might be better than the, than right. the safety factor? That's a good factor? way to think about it. And I think of a factor of safety is, is you know, really it's protection against those unknown unknowns. Um, I've also heard factors of safety called factors of ignorance right. because of that very fact. I mean, we don't know what we don't know. And, and, you know, we, um, and, and to protect ourselves against that eventuality, um, we, we use things like the, you know, like the, the safety factor to hedge our bets um, that, you know, that, that, and protect ourselves against failures that we don't, cannot foresee. And that's part of the nature of the business, and that's part of the price you pay for, for you know, working on, on cutting-edge systems is that you know, sometimes these things don't, don't fail in ways that you can envision. Mm-hmm. So it might be some, also, in some sense, a failure of imagination right. on our part mm-hmm. as human beings. I mean, we're, we, we can only picture what we, you know, we can only envision what, what our minds will allow, you know, what we understand based on our experience our training, um, and there are I'm sure, you know, a myriad of ways that things can fail that, that we can't think of. Um, and so we can certainly design against failure modes that we know about, planes, you know, things like that. But you know, if there's a failure mode that we can that we can't conceive of, how do you protect against mm-hmm. that? <laughs> yeah. Um, one way to protect against that would be the factor of safety. Yeah, and um, I guess so. We we talked about the the let's let's call them razor thin safety factors that that we have in in the aerospace industry, and in rocketry at least we have a very you know neat equation that kind of encapsulates why this is the case. So why don't you maybe take us through the you know the famous rocket right. equation of of why it is so hard to put something in orbit. Sure. Sure. So uh, Sokovsky's rocket equation, you know, the rock, uh, rocket equation, which was developed in what 1900 or something. Yeah, like very that, early on. Yeah, late 1800s or something like that. Uh, basically, says that the the uh, a quantity called delta v, change in change in velocity, is equal to the gra- a gravitational constant times the specific impulse of your engine, um, times the log of uh, the natural log of of the final final mass divided or initial mass divided by final. mass. Um, and then what that what that means is is that you know, okay, so we need about eight sec, eight kilometers per second of delta v to get into Earth orbit, and about eleven kilometers per second of delta v to escape Earth orbit. Um, gravitational constant is, is a fixed value. Um, the specific impulse of your engine is is, an, is a measure of the efficiency of your uh, of a rocket engine. The specific impulse units are seconds, uh, but the specific impulse is designed as, or is defined as the thrust out of the engine divided by the mass flow rate of propellant into the engine. So it's a, it's a ratio. Um, uh, liquid oxygen and kerosene engines, which are you know used on the, on the Falcon uh, Nine these today, they were they were used in in uh, the. Uh, the, the Soyuz rocket in the 60s, uh, as well as the, the Saturn V first stage, the, the, S, the S, S1C first stage of the Saturn V, all used uh, LOX kerosene as propellants. 
typical specific impulses for those engines are, are on the order of 250 seconds. Um, so the, the uh, high, and it's well under well known that there are higher uh, specific efficiencies, higher specific impulse uh, propellant combinations. Liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen is a is a very en uh, high energy uh, propellant. Um, it was propellants that were used on, uh, on the shuttle main engines, uh, as well as the S uh, the S two and the S S four B upper stages, uh, second and third stages of the Saturn V launch vehicle. Those engines are, are typically on the order of 400 to 450 seconds uh, specific impulse. So they're almost, almost twice as efficient as the LOX kerosene engines. Uh, the problem, you know, you don't, nobody gets, you don't get anything for free. And so the, the problem that we run into is the propellant densities for LOX kerosene are much higher than the uh, propellant densities for uh, liquid oxygen and, and liquid hydrogen. Liquid hydrogen is a very energetic, or it has a lot of stored potential, you know, stored energy in it, but it's a very small molecule and as a result has a very low density on the order of 4.4 pounds per cubic foot, whereas, you know, water, uh, liquid hydrogen, uh, sorry, liquid oxygen has a, has a density on the order of 71 pounds mm -hmm. per cubic foot. Liquid kerosene is, a, you know, is, is up in the 60s or something like that as well as is water. Um, so you can compare, because, because the, um, um, the hydrogen you know, has such a low density. You need a lot of a lot of volume to get a, an equivalent amount of mass. And so the, we can use lo um, the, those locks. Uh, uh, hydrogen gives you a very high specific impulse um, and, and a moderate amount of uh, moderately high thrust. Shuttle main engines were each on the order of uh, three hundred and seventy-five thousand pounds thrust, uh, whereas the each whereas a single um, F1 engine on the Saturn V main uh, first stage was on the order of 1.5 million pounds of thrust. So the problem is you need that high thrust to, to get off the ground, and then you need the high efficiency to go into orbit. And so what that uh, leads to is the, is uh, the recognition that staging rockets is a very efficient way to get to orbit. Efficient in, in, in a system sense, not efficient in the sense that you're throwing away bits along the way. Um, for the Saturn V, we needed that high thrust, uh, low ISP engines on the first stage to, to break free of the ground and get uh, get to the first stage point where the you know where the, the second stage would ignite and then we and then we'd use um, higher efficiency LOX uh, uh, LOX uh, hydrogen fuels for the second and third stages. Right, and I guess just just to clarify that point about that you made about propellant. So I mean, so you have liquid oxygen and kerosene, which is currently being used right. by, by by SpaceX, for example. And then ideally, you would want to use the hydrogen and the oxygen combination. Yeah. But the problem with that is because the density is so low, you end up having your huge. tanks get huge, which then feeds into, I guess, the second part of the rocket equation, which is that exactly. that that mass ratio. Mass that if you have these massive tanks, you're adding all this extra dry mass, exactly. which you have to lug up into exactly. space. So that's, that's a good point. So the, as I said, the, the, the second part of the rocket equation is, is the natural log of the, the initial mass, that is the, 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 the structural mass plus your payload plus your fuel, divided by the, the final mass, which is your, your structural mass plus payload. Um, and so the more efficient you can make your, um, 
your your tankage, your structure, the structure in general, the lighter weight you the, the lighter uh, that you can make those, those that structure, then the, then the better that ratio is going to be, um, and so you know that that leads to you know, uh, you know the current state of art and in, in you know in face uh, vehicle structures. Shows that the uh, these structures are on the order of you know, five five to ten percent structure and ninety you know ninety to ninety five percent fuel. So so I guess if a, if a if a rocket is on the launch pad, and you five percent of the mass of that is fuel. Right. Fuel. So you you just imagine that rocket standing there, ninety five percent is fuel, yeah. and the rest. Is, is structure ten percent is, is the structure and payload. So kind of and then the analogy of the the balloon is isn't very far fetched because right. you basically have a very thin yeah. membrane of yeah. material and it's holding all this right. explosive together yeah. basically. Yeah. And and I guess the, the the other side going back to the safety factor is that because you have that log term on the mass ratio and you basically have to pack as much fuel into your structure all the fuel you need exactly yeah. to, to to get into orbit. That's why the material has to work so hard so that you can shave every gram off. Exactly. We're working right at, right at the, you know, very close to the, to the ultimate, in, or to, you know, to the, to the yield stresses of the material, in some cases. So we have to make the structures, you know, every, every bit of the structure has to function and, and be contributing to, you know, to some higher performance goal um, with a fully stressed design, right? Everything's working right at its mm -hmm. fully stressed design. Every an optimal structure. Everything's right at its yield, you know, yield stress or, or ultimate stress. We're on the verge of buckling to make the most efficient design. Right, and I guess so. So one, I guess, remedy or or compromise that you that you alluded to was the multi staging. Exactly. That basically, as you as you're going up into space, you're throwing parts of your structure and away. Tanks away to, and then and then restarting the you know, and then restarting the rocket equation, if you will, by you know, by igniting the second stage, and then um, and then when that's and the tank, tanks on the second stage are empty, then you fire the third stage. Um, in theory, you, you could have infinite number of stages, and in practicality, I mean, three three stages seems to be about you know, the, the practical limit in terms of a finite number of stages. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess perhaps uh, in another way to get around the, the problem, which is, I guess, that what we have been working on for a while, is maybe changing the material exactly. system. So what is, what is the classic material right. system that, let's say, was used for the Saturn V? Um, or, or even modern rockets, and what are we trying to do with, right. with composites? Yeah. So um, traditionally, rocets have used um, uh, aluminum and aluminum alloys. Um, the, the space shuttle external tank was, uh, was made from a, a, an aluminum lithium alloy. The lithium was in there and, and resulted in about a 5% weight savings uh, over conventional aluminum alloys. Um, the, the uh, aluminum was the weapon of choice, uh, material of choice for for a number of years. Um, as you noted, composites, you know, just based on a on a pure purely on, a, on an aerial weight uh, comparison, composites are forty percent lighter than, than mm -hmm. aluminum uh, for an, equi an equivalent thickness. The, uh, um, so, 
and you know, composites also have directionality. They, you know, they yeah, so maybe just explain perhaps what, 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 what why does sure. it have directionality? Sure. How is if, it if made? You think of composite, uh, composite means combination. That's that's the word. You know, the word also the word composite also means combination. Um, and composite, aerospace composites are combinations of uh, carbon carbon or graphite fibers um, and and an epoxy resin. So that's a, that's the typical combination. You can also have um, Metal fibers and and uh, uh, metal matrix uh, boron or boron fibers and, and aluminum matrix you can have all sorts of different combinations. But tra traditional you know, current aerospace composites, uh, for example, the Airbus A three fifty and the Boeing seven eight seven are made from graphite epoxy composites. Uh, uh, composites. Um, so the the fibers themselves are the load bearing portion of that composite. They take the, the structural loads, the, the matrix, the epoxy matrix is really just there to keep the fibers aligned and keep them from moving around relative to each other. Um, so the, um, the carbon fibers are, you know, are, again, very directional. They're very stiff and strong along their longitudinal direction, but they're very weak in, uh, in transversely. Um, so the way we... Uh, I, uh, remedy that that uh, behavior is by putting down multiple layers of carbon fibers at different angles relative to each other to build up, you know, build up composite laminates uh, that is, you know, out of multiple composite plies, um, and then by changing those fiber orientation angles and the number of plies of, of each of different thicknesses, we can then uh, achieve a, a, a structure that can carry loads in multiple directions. Carry pressure, shear, bending, uh, you know, torsion, mm -hmm. you know, uh, rather than being optim optimized for one different, one specific direction. Right, and I guess so. You alluded to the to the density side or the weight side of things. So it's relatively right. intuitive to say, well, a composite for the same thickness or right. of, of a specific sheet of component. Let's That's say it has a higher, has the same strength right. or same stiffness, but right. weighs less, right. which is obviously great in terms yes. of the rocket equation. Now, composites are, are are often then kind of hailed as you know the be all, and they're gonna it's the next materials right. revolution. But obviously, things aren't as easy because otherwise they'd be everywhere, and we wouldn't we wouldn't be doing research. So, what are some of the problems with uh, with composites and some of the disadvantages over other material right. systems? So, so com you know, metal. Uh, uh, so, say first that you know composites are materials that become structures through manufacturing and processes. So they're much more sensitive to, or, you know, they're much more process dependent, and they're much more sensitive to process variations than metal structures, um, metal structures and, and metal metallic materials made from metallic materials. So if you have a, pe a piece of aluminum, you order a block of a certain alloy, its properties are very are are basically locked in when that when that bill, you know when that uh, uh, alloy is created. Um, the you. You can make that piece of metal, that block of metal, into a structure by machining it into a specific shape. Uh, but the fund fundamental material properties are the same. Now, you know, there are details like alloying and that kind of thing, which, you know, which are subtleties. But but the basic material properties are are are, are, are uh, uh, constant, whether it's a a block of metal uh, material or a piece of metal structure. Composites are, as I said before, they're, they're materials that become structures, you know, and, and based on how they're hand, they're they're manufactured, they're fabricated, and how they're processed. 
And so any process variations um, can result in a sub-optimal, you know, sub, sub, uh, subpar, subpar product, uh, structure. And so, for example, you know, many, audit, many composites are, are vacuum bagged as they're, as they're put in, before they're put into an autoclave. Which is a... a like an, auto, an autoclave is, is a, as an... Uh, think of a pressure cooker. You know, it says high temperature plus high pressure. Um, and you're cooking, you're, you're uh, processing these composite parts under temperature, elevated temperature and pressure to drive out my, uh, small bubbles that, that would form you know, a, as, as, the, uh, as the, the resin goes from a solid to a liquid. And each of those little bubbles could be a, a potential failure you know, uh, point, and, and so that's a, that's an example of how that processing can can very much affect the part quality. Um, so an, another way of that you know that can happen is is, is that you know when these parts are vacuum bagged, if the ba vacuum bag has a leak, you're going to you know, you're not going to get the part quality that you know, necessarily get the part quality that you expected. Right. So I guess the the variability. Tie, the variability in manufacturing, which you just described, basically then, I guess, ties back into, you know, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns yeah. that, because composites have great material properties, but because it's so hard yes. to guarantee them in manufacturing, yes. you basically need to apply higher safety factors, that, which is then harder in terms of the rocket equation, right, again, exactly. in terms of so, the mass. So, you, you know, you, and another way to do that is you do more inspection of the finished part, looking for flaws and voids and, and, and potential failure, you know, failure sites. Um, but that's also expensive. It takes time and, and effort to, to do those as well. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, there's, there's another problem with, with, with composites in terms of, I've, I've, we've seen them on, on a lot of solid rocket boosters, right. but they're not so much used or they, the, people want to be using them on, on liquid, liquid boosters. Right. What is the problem with the with the liquid boosters and composites? Yeah, because so what happens is that uh, you know cryogenic fluids so like liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen, they they, they it, it, to get to the, to a liquid state on those. I mean, in, in the air, there they exist as gases, but to liquefy those uh, those, those gases requires uh, very cold temperatures, which is um, you know, minus two, you know, three hundred degrees to four hundred degrees F. Depending on you know, and and that cryogenic temperature then makes the resins, the epoxies, very brittle, um, and so that can cause micro cracking and then now leak path. Uh, so it, a leaky tank doesn't do you know, doesn't do you much good, right? So it doesn't carry much fuel, um, and so if you're you know when you put these cryogenic fuels into into uh, into composite tanks, they can cause as I said you know cracking and fracture. Then becomes a, a problem, you know, for, for a potential problem for uh, for those tanks. Mm -hmm. now you can put liners, you can put multiple, you know, thinner layers to avoid, you know, to try to mitigate those, that you know, those kind of uh, failure modes. Um, and then there's still work ongoing to do that. Right. Right. Still an area of research. Yeah, and I guess so. Looking a bit further ahead, um, we've both been working on a, a new technology. Which is called toe steering, right. and you're quite um, known for a capability that you brought to NASA right. called ISAC. Right. Um, could you just maybe tell our, our listeners why toe steering is a good good idea, and what the differences are between so that the classic straight fiber approach of composites and now this toe steering right. technology? Right. So, 
So as you just noted, you know, conventional com uh, composite structures, you know, the ones that are being used on the, on, you know, on the A350 and the, and the 787 are typically straight fiber composites. So e within each layer of, the, of that composite structure, all the fibers are straight and parallel within uh, that given layer. And then, they, and then the next layer, it's a, it's a different fiber angle and a, and a different fiber angle, but constant within each layer. So toe steering is, is, a, is a, uh, an idea where, wherein uh, the fiber angle within, within each ply could be different. Uh, it could be different from, you know, from, uh, within a, a ply and, and at different locations uh, on the structure. And and then as the you know the, the idea behind fiber uh, toe steering is is that is to take advantage of the directionality that I mentioned of you know for for uh, uh, carbon fiber composites where the since the fibers take the forces along their length by by steering the fibers by by changing their fiber angle that gives you the opportunity to um, to change load paths uh, to move forces. Uh, Around the structure in in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a broader sense, and then um, think about a, a knot hole, which is you know, in a in a in a tree. That's a flaw. Uh, that's a, that's effectively like a like a hole in a structure. The, the the wood grain grows around that knot hole and and and, and transfers the load any um, and the the tree loads around that that discontinuity. And conceptually, you can do similar things with, with uh, composite structures. If you have a, a passenger door or a cargo door, you can uh, route the loads around that um, you know, in, in an airplane fuselage or a, or a rocket body. So basically, that's where, I guess, to some extent, ISAC came in, that right. you, were, you were saying, look, we, we've, got, we've got this inspiration from nature, sure. let's say, in terms of sure. having holes in trees and, and you know, the grains growing around it. Why don't we try to do the same thing with with fuselage doors yeah. and aircraft, yeah. or or I don't know windows right. that, that exist. So how does ISAC go about sure. do, doing so, that? So ISAC is a capability. ISAC stands for Integrated Structural Assembly of Advanced Composites. That's a capability that we brought online at NASA Langley uh, to do advanced composites research, both straight fi straight fiber car carbon composites as well as uh, toe steered composites. Um, it really grew out of uh, you know. Somewhat selfish need, you know, need on my part to 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 develop or to to, to build uh, composite test specimens to support my toe steered research, um, and you know, um, and then led to this broader capability to you know to do compo advanced composites as well as conventional composites as well as other uh, uh, fun functionalities, other capabilities besides fi uh, uh, fiber placement. Um, the system that we that we uh, purchased was a was a commercial uh, was from uh, was a commercial robot system that had a fiber placement end effector on it. Um, that once that fiber we we um, once that fiber placement end effector was was uh, detached and stored in a, in, in a uh, in a cradle, we could pick up an alternate another end effector that could help us do toaster or. Um, that could help us do uh, work like continuous toe shearing, the research that's being done here at Bristol, or stitching, or uh, non-destructive evaluation. So really, we could have these, a generic uh, platform, a generic tool platform that we could 
puts any uh, a number any number of specific alternate technologies besides fiber placement and use that same common robot platform to to, um, to get a, uh, a large work envelope and a high precision high ac high accuracy um, uh, placement of the Material. Right. So I guess, I mean, so composites manufacturing is fundamentally an additive manufacturing yes. process. Well, metals, most of the time, it's you're cutting away yeah. material, it's subtractive. Except with now, you know, things like, you know, uh, you know powder deposition right. and things like that. But in general, you're, right. you know, machining technologies are so, subtractive. Yeah, so because composites are additive manufacturing and you, you're adding layers upon layers upon sure. layers, and I guess, I mean, 3D printing is also very much in vogue right now. So it's almost like you're, you're doing 3D printing, but with basically sheets of, of, of plastic that have been reinforced with, with, with carbon fibers. And so I guess ISAC, because it's, it's a platform, it can basically change in between these heads. So you could have a composite manufacturing head, or then you could switch to a 3D printing head and maybe, maybe make a little feature somewhere. Uh, this is all yeah, possible with the, ISAC. Conceptually, sure, yeah. And uh, that, that's very true. Right. It's really fascinating. So just uh, as, as the last point, I'd like to... So with ISAC, you've, you've manufactured some, some uh, pretty interesting uh, specimens, right. mainly, I guess, the rocket shells or, or, or yeah, fuselages, aircraft fuse yeah. prototypes. For, you know, for concept, con concepts. Yeah. Right. And, and, and those have been toe-steered. So yeah. what, what is the specific application of toe-steering there in terms of buckling and post-buckling? And right. what is, I mean, NASA Langley is known for, well, one of the things it's known for is this thing called a shell knockdown factor, shell buckling knockdown right. factor. Why is that knockdown factor needed? Right. And, why, and how does toe-steering alleviate some of those, those, right. those downsides? So, so the, the shell buckling knockdown factor really grew out of... Uh, Work that was, you know, that's been done over the, you know, the past century or so. I mean, um, and the, the observation was that um, exp you know, experimental shell buckling results were on the, on a cylinder, on, basically, on a cylinder, typically cylinders in compression. Yeah, in compression, uh, were always much lower. Experimental buckling loads were always much lower than analytical predictions. You know. You know Sometimes a factor of two or something, you know, le uh, less than predicted by theory, and so there's been, you know, a, a, um, the, the shell buckling knockdown factor came about to, as basically, if an empirical factor that was applied to an analytical prediction to get a a, a knocked down result that would be used for design purposes, and then the, and as I said, the, you, to to better. Uh, sync up with the experimental, you know, the experimentally observed trends. Um, so that that knockdown factor of uh, 0.65, you know, has kind of uh, been, been carried over from the 60s into uh, current practice. But that also if, if you think of the, the inverse of 0.65, that's 1.54. What that buckling knockdown factor represents is an additional factor of safety specifically for buckling, added on top of your material factor safety, added on top of your, you know, your loads factors of safety. And so, so you're adding conservatism on top of multiplying conservatism times more conservatism, even more conservatism. And as we talked about with the rocket equation and, and that kind of thing, it's, the problem is hard enough as it is when you add more weight onto your structure for things like buckling, you know, knockdowns or, or factors of safety and, you know, 
you're, make, you're making your life even harder. Mm -hmm. You're making your structure heavier, um, which comes at a cost of you know, payload and fuel and actually being able to make it to orbit. So you know, if we can reduce those buckling knockdown factors, not not without uh, you know, we want we want to do that. But we want to do that in a sensible manner and and and, and uh, know that we can use uh, modern analysis tools like uh, nonlinear finite element analyses um, and and uh, uh, to do that in a systemic systematic manner rather than you know just you know reducing it and hoping for the best. Mm -hmm. Right, that's not a, a very sensible way to do things. But, um, so there's a lot of work that's ongoing to, to look at um, reducing the buckling knockdown factors by doing combining nonlinear analyses, full field measurements of, of displacements and, and, and geometric imperfections. And, and you want to measure those imperfections because we believe that the imperfections, little imperfections in the manufacturing process and geometry are driving this knockdown. They're driving the, the lack of correlation between test and analysis. Um, and, and then, and which results in the knockdown factor. Mm -hmm. That's correct. So, um, how do you know, that's that's the need. And, and then one, one thing, as part of my research into, into toasted composite shells, um, I noted that uh, I got very good correlation between linear finite element analysis, finite element analyses, which are much simpler to run than than nonlinear analyses. But I got very good co correlation between the you know, uh, you know uh, between those linear analyses and my experimental uh, buckling uh, test results, and so um, my my uh, suspicion uh, was that those that correlation was being uh, was as a result a result of the steered uh, nature of you know, the steered laminates uh, that I was using for these shells. So I've done a, a lot of other uh, analyses to try to confirm that that's the case, and it seems to be uh, the best answer that I can come up right. with. Right. So, so, so just to summarize that point, basically the, the results seem to suggest that as you're toe steering, these initial imperfections, be they geometric imperfections or manufacturing or, manufacturing or material property differences, the little variance in those, that toe steering can alleviate some of that sensitivity yes, to the initial imperfections. Exactly. No, you, you, you hit exactly right, and that's and you put it much better than I did, and um, and that's certainly a, a very hopeful sign for the future. Is that now by by toe, by toe steering and using you know changing you know, using that toe steering uh, design to move loads around the structure and going from a global buckling response, you know, which is like a, think of a coke can. You know, when you compress it, it, it collapses, it, it buckles and then collapses, and it's no longer capable of carrying loads. But now going to a toe steered structure where you know it, it would buckle locally and perhaps you know fail in, at that point in the structure, but not it would not be a global failure. The structure is still capable of carrying some amount of global loads, um, even even uh, even though part of it has. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that that can kind of, you know, either mental experiment right. or actually you can you can yeah. do this at home. This yes, experiment is actually very demonstrative. If you stand on a coke can, it will it will carry your weight quite happily. But then <laughs> if if someone basically just flicks it on the side oh, yeah. and just creates a little yes. dent, that imperfection is enough to basically just collapse exactly. the entire structure. Yeah. And I've done that at home. Yeah, I'm sure you have as, as well. And it's. Yeah. 
but but that's a global failure of the structure. But even so, even even so, with that, if it buckles locally, if the rest of the structure is still capable of carrying the load, that you know that that, that that's a very that, uh, safe. It's a more it's a safer structure. Right. Well, I mean that that research is you know still ongoing. I'm yes. I'm part of you know trying to to push that forward. It's definitely a very fascinating field and holds promise for you know developing lighter rocket structures. Um, just want to thank you for 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 this nice interview. Uh, it was it was you know a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, thank you for the opportunity, Reiner. It's been fun. Hi there. One last thing before you head off. If you want to learn more about the topics we just discussed, you can find show notes with links to more in-depth material at airspaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast. That's airspaceengineeringblog, all in one word. If you enjoy these conversations and want to support the podcast, then I would appreciate a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or just a like on Facebook. This helps others to find the podcast online. Facebook is also the best place to get in touch with me if you have suggestions for the podcast or want to leave comments about this episode. If you want to remain up to date with the newest episodes, then you can subscribe on iTunes or on Stitcher. And if you want to receive the newest blog post as well, then you can give my email list a try at aerospaceengineeringblog.com forward slash newsletter. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.